following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So the text for this morning's sermon comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Luke 13, verses 10 to 17. And um, the title of the message is Religion at Its Worst. And hopefully that's sort of piqued your interest a little bit to try to figure out what in the world we're going to be talking about this morning. So turn in your Bibles if you have them to that text, or you can also follow with me on the screen up here. And it reads... Referring to Jesus, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hand on her, and immediately she was made straight. She glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Amen. Let's pray. God, give us eyes to see this living Christ who walked among us. To show us who you are. Give us faith to follow and to obey the invitation given to us through the ministry of your son. Help us to understand what he taught that day in the synagogue as he confronted that synagogue ruler with the true nature of his heart. Give us the humility to acknowledge the ways in which we are so like him ourselves. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The last message we looked at Luke's uh, in the at, at uh, in Luke at the encounter that Jesus had with a group of these Jews who basically wanted to probe Jesus on a recent current event in that time, which was this massacre of Galileans who were slaughtered in the temple at Jerusalem while they were worshiping, nonetheless, by this Roman prefect named Pontius Pilate. And in responding to the question of the Jews as to why this happened, um, Jesus revealed two of the biggest errors that they had in their view of suffering and salvation. And I would argue that these are two of the same errors that are most responsible for keeping people, even in our day, from receiving the salvation that is available to them through Jesus. The first error in their theology was simply this. Error number one was, you basically get what you deserve in life. That's life. You get what you deserve. In other words, 
If you're having a hard time, well, it's because you've done something wrong to deserve it. And so God is punishing you. And on the other hand, if life is going well for you, well, then it must be because you're doing something right in your life. God is rewarding you because that's how life works. Do good, receive reward. Do bad, receive punishment. That's the way God treats us. That's the way the universe operates. And so for those trapped in this way of thinking, it was this constant struggle to earn favor in God's eyes so that life would go well with you. And then it was about bracing yourself for punishment every time that you failed to live up to God's expectations. And Jesus categorically rejected this perspective on life, which stands in total contradiction to the gospel message of salvation by grace alone. You know what Jesus said was, listen, if you really think life is about getting what you deserve, then it's all punishment. There's nothing good that's going to come your way. That's not how my world operates. As he says in Luke 13, verse 2, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. You know, do you, do you really think that that's the explanation? And it's a rhetorical question because the response that Jesus intended was clearly the negative. No, of course not. That's not how this world operates. The second error that Jesus exposed could be summarized by this statement. I'm not the problem. I'm the victim. Okay? In other words... The problems that I'm facing in my life are not because of me. It's because of the world around me. It's because of everybody else that's making it hard on me. That because of them, because of theirs and because of their faults, my life is the way it is. I'm the victim in all of this. I ought to be comforted, not punished. I ought to receive a medal, not punishment. Um... For the Jews, their problem was what? It was the Roman occupation. It was a political one. You know, it's like, we're not the problem. It's Pilate. He's the problem. It's these Romans that you need to fix, Jesus. You need to get rid of them. They're the problem. And Jesus, again, rejected this viewpoint. He's saying your problem, your biggest problem, is not your Roman occupiers. It's the sin that is in your own heart. Luke chapter 13, verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And I got to say, this is not an easy message for any of us to swallow. Even in our day, we struggle to own up to the sin that is in our hearts. I think a lot of you probably have been following the controversy that has surrounded the NBC news anchor Brian Williams regarding lies that he told when he was covering the Iraq war, said that he was flying in a helicopter that got struck by missiles. And it actually turns out that that never had happened. It was in a helicopter that was flying an hour away from him. Several things struck me about this whole episode with Brian Williams. One is... Despite all of the success that Williams achieved in life, I mean, you can't really climb to a higher pinnacle than he achieved, really. 
you know? And yet, even a guy like Brian Williams clearly felt that something was deficient in his life that caused him to embellish and lie about his war experiences. You know, it reveals something very telling about the human heart, doesn't it? That there was still some emptiness there in him that led him to try to make his life greater than it actually was. Another thing that I think we can note about this whole thing with Brian Williams is um, even in his confession, how he just couldn't bring himself to truly come clean, right? And so he never actually outright said, I lied. Instead, what he said was, I misremembered. What an interesting word, isn't that? I misremembered facts on that day. The third thing that I just want to say about it is um, this self-righteous anger and indignation that erupted on the Internet against Brian Williams with so much judgmentalism. And I thought of how it's so much easier to kick someone when they're down and judge them for their sin. Because, like, of course, none of us ever embellish our stories, right? Um, I mean, <laughs> of course we don't. What a horrible man Brian Williams is, right? And how much easier it is to see the sin in others than to see the sin in our own lives. In fact, our propensity in life is to always shift blame to others because we're so blinded by the sin in our own heart. And so I believe this wholeheartedly. This has to be an act of God. Unless God breaks through our defenses that we erect to protect ourselves, none of us can be honest enough to confess our sins. That's why Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 8, and when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment because it doesn't come naturally to any of us. None of us naturally give ourselves up to that kind of confession. But what Jesus says is the Holy Spirit is going to come into the world and he's going to start breaking down some of those walls in your heart and enable you to acknowledge some of the darker parts of who you are that are just too painful to admit, too difficult to acknowledge. You see, the gospel argues the exact opposite of these two errors. You see, what the gospel says is your primary problem is not out there with some boogeyman that is bringing you down. The primary problem is with yourself, with the sin that is in your heart. But at the same time, the gospel also says that because of God's mercy, you don't have to get what you deserve. In fact, you can receive far more good than you could have ever imagined because of what Christ has done for you. This is the essence of the gospel message. Uh, I've shared with you this quote on a number of times by Tim Keller, which says it slightly differently but captures the same message. The gospel is that I am far worse than I imagine and simultaneously more loved and accepted by God than I ever dared hope for because of Jesus' death for me. I don't have to get what I deserve, even though I am at the core of my own problems. 
And I want to argue to you that this fundamental stance of repentance characterizes the entirety of the Christian life. When we can finally come clean with our sin, it begins to open the doors of healing and redemption that can happen in every sphere of life. In your relationship with your friends, in your goals and dreams and hopes for your life, in your marriage. You know, just the other night, you know, Betty and I had an argument. And she said some things that really, she said something in a way that I, it really offended me. In the way that she was casting the situation. It happened in the morning. And I was taking, this actually just happened on Saturday. Was <laughs> it no, just yesterday? Um, and so I got in the shower. And the whole shower, I was mounting my defense. I knew she was downstairs pouting. And so as I was in the shower, I was preparing my defense against the comment she made to me. And man, you know, that, that voice in my head was going overdrive, you know, as I was just, I was getting, I was working myself up, <laughs> you know, into greater anger and indignation and self-righteousness. And somewhere in the course of that shower, God just began to break through all of that and said, you know, what you need to do is not lawyer up and go down there and start another big argument with your wife. You need to go down there and apologize to her and admit you're wrong. And so I got out of that shower, went downstairs, and I just hugged her and said, I'm sorry, you know? You know, this is sort of the nature of the Christian journey, is it starts with the foundation of repentance. And out of that repentance flows an entirely different life than the life you would have chosen under your own leadership, under your own wisdom of thinking, everyone else out there is my enemy. Everyone else out there is wrong. I'm the only one that is right. The problem is out there, not in here, in my heart. Well, that was a review of the passage that we just looked at leading up to now. And we find ourselves at verse 10 now. And Jesus is in a synagogue, as was his habit. And on this day, as he probably did on many days when he visited a synagogue, he was given an opportunity to preach the word that day. And in the midst of preaching his sermon, he notices a woman in the congregation that's not like the other people. Clearly, she has this disability. And what we're told is that her spine was bent crooked to the point where she was bent over and could not even sit up straight. Um, specifically, we were told that this woman had a disabling spirit. Now, this is interesting. Um, a lot of people think like this. Whenever you read about medical problems in the Bible, it says that everyone has a demon because those people were ignorant. They were ancient people who didn't know anything about medical science. So their only explanation for everything was demons running around abusing everyone. That's absolutely not true at all. In fact, by far the more common explanation in the Bible itself for medical problems is medical. Okay? It's just medical but every once in a while, there is a comment made that this thing is spiritual. There is a spiritual dimension to this problem. Now, that's what's happening here is the saying he recognized that there was a disabling spirit upon this woman that was coddling, causing her spinal deformity. It's interesting also, this, this story of healing is particularly interesting because it's almost in between these demon possession stories, 
and these just plain old healing of medical diseases stories. Because Jesus in the demon, whenever he casts out a demon, he, he never, there's really no record of him ever touching a person or laying hands on a person. Usually when he touches a person, it's about healing from a medical problem. And so although there is a spirit causing this malady, he touches this woman in order to heal her. Um, I said in the introduction as well as in the last message that the Jewish worldview was that basically you get what you deserve in life, right? You get what you deserve in life. And according to that belief, this woman would have suffered horribly, not only for her physical disability, but also because of the stigma of her illness, which, I mean, what would everyone in her neighborhood be thinking? In that synagogue, be thinking, well, I don't have pity for her. Why? Because she just is getting what she deserves. I mean, I don't know her whole life. I, I can't read her mind. I don't know every evil thing she's done. But clearly, she has done something horrible. Otherwise, why would she be afflicted like this? Of all the people in our village, why her? I mean, she's clearly under the curse of God. And that's why this is happening to her. And I wonder, I just wonder, if one of the reasons why Jesus put his hand on her was to reverse that view of the curse and say, she is not cursed by God. She is loved by God as a daughter of Abraham. What's interesting also about this healing story is that unlike most other healing stories where people are literally breaking down the door, or tearing a hole in the roof to get to Jesus. There's no indication that this woman actually asked for healing. She just seems to be there that day in the congregation. And you also sort of wonder, I mean, 18 years. 18 years living with this deformity. I suspect that she saw her disability as a part of her identity. This is just who I am. This is my life. This is me. A woman bent over, crooked disabled. And so maybe she never even thought that Jesus could heal something like this. But despite all of that, Jesus himself was moved with pity and with love. And he took the initiative to heal this woman unsolicited. And it's hard for us to imagine what it would have been like in that moment when this woman who was bent over her entire life pretty much as you know, I mean, for a pretty much probably arguably her whole adult life, suddenly stood up straight for the first time in 18 years. And you know, that should have been the most unrestrained moment of celebration and joy in that synagogue that day. But sad to say, that's not how the story unfolds. Because in verse 14, it says, But the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. First, it's interesting that the synagogue leader doesn't talk to Jesus directly, right? He talks to the people. And it's, it's interesting to speculate why that was. You know, it may have been because he was a little intimidated to take on Jesus 
head on, right? Because it seems like anyone who gets on a one-to-one debate with Jesus loses, right? So he doesn't want to look like an idiot. He doesn't want to be a fool here. So, he, just, so he, he takes his anger out on the people, right? Maybe it was because he felt like he was losing control of his synagogue, right? This is my synagogue. These are my people. So he talks to the people instead and says, it's your fault for coming trying to get healed on this day when this is the Sabbath. This is a day for rest. Um, what is hard to believe about this is the synagogue leader's incapability of rejoicing with this woman. Instead, he responds with indignation and anger. Why? Why was this guy so angry? Because Jesus broke their rules. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that the Sabbath was a day of rest. But as you may have heard me say before, the Pharisees took that law of Moses and blew it out exponentially to create this inordinate and ridiculous number of additional rules that defined what it meant not to work on the Sabbath. And in that list that they made, healing was on that list. Now, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. If you were to really press the issue and say, what exactly is it that Jesus was guilty of when you're saying to him he violated the Sabbath? Uh, It's hard to really know where he's guilty because what is the actual interaction that happened? Jesus spoke. That's not really work, right? Because you were allowed to talk on the Sabbath. Jesus spoke, and the woman stood up. (laughs) That's the only work that was done in that healing miracle. So if you really want to get technical about it, you could have, Jesus could have really pressed that synagogue leader and say, you break it down for me. Tell me where we worked. And I think if Jesus went that route, he had a very valid argument to this synagogue leader. But I think in truth, this is the way the synagogue leader worked it out in his own head. You know, a doctor would not be permitted to open his clinic on the Sabbath. Because that clearly is work. That is violation of the Sabbath. And so it's not so much whether you do a lot of this and this and this and that and that's work. But just by virtue of the fact that you healed somebody, like a doctor healed somebody, that by definition is work. And so Jesus, you have violated the Sabbath when you healed this woman. Now, when you understand it in that way, you can actually sort of say that the synagogue leader had an argument there. He had an argument. Because this is, this is what bothered the synagogue leader. This lady you healed, she did not have any pressing, life-threatening emergency here that you had to heal her right at this moment on the Sabbath. In other words, I think the implication of the synagogue leader was, why didn't you just have her come back tomorrow when you could have healed her under the law? And not be so stubborn and violate the law. Um, You know, she has been living with this problem for 18 years. What is one more day going to mean? So if you were really a devout Jew, Jesus, if you really loved God and his commandments, then you would have done the right thing. And just ask this woman to come back tomorrow and heal her then. In essence, what the synagogue leader was saying was, you know, Jesus, I have no problem with your healing ministry. I really don't. 
more power to you. It's great that you're healing people in our community. But why do you have to do it on the Sabbath? Why do you have to do it on a day when God commanded us to rest? Well, this is the way Jesus responds to him in verses 15 to 16. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You see, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy by pointing out, you know, you guys have built-in loopholes. You know, little compassion clauses for your animals. Because you know that they need water every day, otherwise they'll die. And so, you make this little loophole for yourself to allow you to do work by untying your animal and leading it to water. And so what Jesus is saying is this. How can you have, you you know, it's like this. Like you've engineered your rules for your convenience to suit your needs, your agenda. And yet you could not extend the same mercy that you do to animals to this woman that is made in the image of God. This daughter of Abraham, as he calls it. You know, this is what I mean when I say this is religion at its worst. Religion that elevates obedience to rules and regulations as the ultimate goal while missing the whole point for why they were created. It is a religion that looks down on other people. And has no categories for mercy ministry to those in need. It is religion that is self-serving. That pushes people when they're down. And yet makes loopholes for yourself to accommodate your own needs. You see, these Pharisees, they, they fasted hard. They fasted harder than anybody else. They prayed harder than anyone else. They gave more than anyone else. They even, as strange as it sounds to say, rested harder than anyone else. Whenever the Sabbath came around. As Charlie Sheen would have said, winning, right? We are the winners. When you think about religion from this perspective... Then for these Pharisees, for these guys like this ruler, they were ahead of the game. They were better than everyone else. And this is the truth here. When you define religion as following rules, and when you're actually better than other people at keeping the rules, then your secret desire is this, that you actually hope that life is about getting what you deserve, right? Because the truth is, you think you have a lot of good coming to you because you deserve a lot. Because you've sacrificed a lot. Because you've done more than other people. Because you're at the head of that line, aren't you? When God is going to hand out rewards, you're going to be right up there getting the medals. This is religion at its worst. Um, And let me say this. When you start thinking like that, mercy feels more like a threat than a gift. From God. Do you understand that? 
When you think you have earned what you ought to get from God, mercy is not a welcome thing in your life. In fact, you feel threatened by mercy. Because the implication of it is somebody else is going to get what they don't deserve and what I deserve. I'm sure a scene like this is very familiar to many of you. Standing in these interminable Dante's Inferno lines at amusement parks, right? So let's say you're at Six Flags in this hot, humid Chicago summer waiting to ride the new roller coaster that just came out. And you've been in this line for almost two hours. And you finally get toward the front of the line. And you see light at the end of the tunnel. And you're the next one on the next roller coaster. Except that just at that moment, from a totally other end of the side, a whole mass of these rowdy teenagers shows up through a totally unoccupied line. And the employee at Six Flags tells you to stop. And they let this huge party go through first. And you're like, what in the world is going on? And then you realize one of the teenagers has a cast on his leg. And at that moment, I don't think any of you would be thinking something like, well, I'm so glad that Six Flags has a policy like this that accommodates those with medical needs. If you're like me, because this has happened to me before, (laughs) you're probably thinking something like this. That leg don't look all that bad to me. (laughs) Um, Is that even his brace? Or did he borrow it from a friend? Or I can understand why the kid with the broken leg doesn't have to wait in line but gets to cut. But why does his entire high school class get to ride with him? You see, when you feel that you've earned what you deserved, when you've waited those two hours in line, when you've paid the price, grace doesn't sound very inviting to you at all, does it? In fact, grace is abhorrent to you. Why should they get something When they didn't do what I did. Why do they get the same thing I get when I work so much harder than anybody else? If I had to play by the rules, then they should have to too. And I think that's the way that the synagogue leader was thinking that day. Larry Osborne says this. The absolute worst thing about legalism is what it does to mercy. It casts it aside, then walks away. It leaves people who need mercy most to fend for themselves and castigates those who offer mercy as spiritual compromisers who water down the gospel. That's because legalists have always viewed the application of mercy as selling out. They love the idea of mercy, but they want to limit when it's offered. And whom it is offered to. You see, that's the thing that made the difference between Jesus and the synagogue ruler. If pressed, he wouldn't deny that there is mercy. But it's just that they were very stingy with their mercy, right? You can heal him, Jesus, but do it tomorrow when it's right. 
And Jesus was lavish with his mercy. He was reckless with his mercy. I want to heal the girl now. I don't want to wait till tomorrow. I want her to experience my love in this moment. And that's what got under the skin of the Pharisees. Everything in moderation, Jesus. It doesn't have to be done today. Keep the rules. You know, in essence, I think what the, this Pharisee, what this synagogue ruler was saying to Jesus was this. Follow the rules. The rules are what matter. The rules are important. Follow the rules. That's what matters to God. And yet God was standing right in front of him in the person of Jesus and essentially saying to him, you don't even have a clue how lost you are if you can't rejoice with me at the mercy that was shown this woman this day. The story ends with this line in verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. You see, the synagogue ruler couldn't rejoice that day. But the common people sitting in that congregation sure did. They rejoiced. They celebrated. You know, I I sort of think about what it must have been like to be a Jew in those days. Living under the leadership of guys like that synagogue ruler. This oppressive legalistic system of works righteousness. Living day after day being forced to carry an unbearable weight of never measuring up to God's expectations. At least the way the Pharisees taught it to their people. There was no freedom or joy in this religion. It was all guilt and bondage. It was all about doing more and having done so, being told that that wasn't good enough. You need to do more. And I wonder if the Jews in those days, the Jews in that congregation that day, looked in the face of their earthly leaders and wondered, is that the face of God? Is that the face of God? Is that really what God is like? Do they represent God and his heart? So cold, so uncaring, so harsh, so demanding. I'm desperate for help. I'm desperate for a glimmer of hope. But when I look into their eyes, I find no mercy there, only disdain and contempt and condemnation. I think that's what the people were feeling under the leadership of these men. And then Jesus shows up. And hope against all hope, I think the people asked, is this the face of God? Is this, could this possibly be the face of God? Because his face was not like the face of our other leaders. In his eyes, we don't find judgment, we find mercy. We don't find self-righteous pride, but humble kindness and a willingness to give. In other words, you know, let let me just say this. When I've been studying the commentaries this week and trying to figure out what the real message here of Luke chapter 13, verse 10 to 17 is, I was a little disappointed that a lot of commentaries talk about what this is teaching us is that the Sabbath is a good day to do acts of mercy. 
so that we ought to go out there and help people in need. I mean, okay, maybe that's a secondary teaching there, but I think it really misses the whole point of the story. It's not about one more obligation that you're supposed to do. What this passage is really saying is that when Jesus showed up in that synagogue that day and healed that woman, for the first time these people understood what the Sabbath was all about. It was not about God trying to put more weights on our shoulder that we cannot carry. But it was about a Savior that came to carry our burdens for us. That is what the Sabbath was pointing to. And for the first time, the people understood the Sabbath. And so they celebrated. They celebrated. And here was the ruler looking going, this is so wrong. This is so wrong. This is not right. This is not good. And I want to ask you, where would you be standing if you were alive that day? Because here is the truth. I think none of us want to identify ourselves with the Pharisees. But the truth is, if the game of religion is about keeping the rules, then the truth is I'm going to argue a lot of us in this room take a lot of pride in that because we can sure point the finger at a lot of people outside these walls that are not living by the rules, are they? that are probably living a lot more horrible lives than we are. And it's so easy to see that sense of self-righteousness stir within us. And you can be honest with yourself and know this because the truth is, maybe the songs about grace and mercy that we sing about week after week don't actually really stir your heart. It really doesn't do much to you. Because the truth is, for you even, you think life is about getting what you deserve. And you know, I think I have some good things coming to me because I've been living a pretty good life. But what Jesus is inviting us to do this day as we think about this passage is to actually identify with this woman and identify with the people in that congregation that day saying, I am in need of that mercy. I am tired of bearing these burdens by myself. I need Christ, my Sabbath rest. Let's pray. We're going to sing a song before we have uh, opportunity to take part in the Lord's Supper here, the Lord's Table. I just want to invite you through the song and through a little moment of prayer here to prepare your hearts to come to the Lord's table. And I want you to do a little reflecting on this idea of religion in its ugliest forms. Religion at its worst. Religion as nothing more than a bunch of man-made rules that imprison people in bondage and say, you better measure up, you better live like this, otherwise God is going to get angry with you and he's going to punish you. And no matter how hard you try, it just never feels like it's enough, right? That is not Christianity. That is not the gospel. That's bondage. That's Satan's lies. And Jesus walked into that world when he came into this world as a man. And he spoke life and truth to that world. And said, you know, this Sabbath isn't so that this sadistic God
could just torture you a little more and make one day out of every week as miserable as possible by making a list of all the things you're not allowed to do. That was never God's intention for the Sabbath. The intention for the Sabbath was to give rest to your restless souls. Because in truth, in fact, you don't know how to find rest by yourselves. Your hearts are so restless. You're carrying all the burdens of your life on your own shoulders. God wants to come and lift those burdens from you and give you true Sabbath rest. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done for you. And it's about by faith receiving that as a gift of mercy. But to receive that mercy, you have to acknowledge your need for it. We're all the ones that are cutting that line, aren't we? We're all the ones that don't deserve our place at the table. And yet because of God's love for us, he invites us nevertheless to that table. Jesus came to this earth to show us the true face of God. What a beautiful face that was, isn't it? This kind, gentle servant leader who came not to demand, but to give and surrender his life for us. I pray that that is the face of God that you see when you cry out to him and realize that his mercy is always there for those humble enough to acknowledge their need for it. Would you just pray to God for a few minutes as we uh, continue worshiping through the song and then we'll go on to take this Lord's Supper together. Mm-hmm.